0: Hey everyone, if you love listening to Curbsiders and want to enhance the experience, then now is a great time to join the Curbsiders Patreon with new annual memberships where you can save 10% off the monthly rate. You'll have the option to hear all the episodes ad-free plus twice monthly bonus episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com curbsiders. This is a great way to use that CME money that's probably burning a hole in your pocket. Plus support the show so we can keep bringing you clinical Pearls, practice changing knowledge, mini-series like Teach and Addiction Medicine, our digest newsletter, and of course expand our video content. So join the CashLack family today at patreon.com curbsiders.
1: Hey Matt. Hey Paul. <laughs> I finally started intermittent fasting, and I've been doing all my eating within a window. <laughs> Okay. sad to say, it's been the McDonald's drive-through window. <laughs> <laughs> the McDonald's drive-through window, Matt. Do you, as opposed to like a window of time? Do you? I I understand. Yes, Paul. Right. Um, all right. This felt like it was going to grab your alley. I'm kind of disappointed in this reaction. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs>
0: All right. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Wado here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, America's primary care physician. Paul, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, Matt. America is good. We're, we're all great.
0: America's good. Uh, and, and tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, lifestyle, uh, weight management, ketogenic diet, Paul, even some fasting, so this this is a this is a great episode, and we have a great guest, Doctor Will Yancey. Uh, before we tell you about him, Paul, will you remind us uh, what do we do on the Curbsiders and introduce our our special guest host?
1: Sure, Matt. As a reminder, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as you mentioned, we are joined by super producer and special guest co host, uh, Doctor Fatima Sayed, who put the script together and, and sort of made all of this happen. Dr. Syed, how are you?
2: I am doing well. Thanks for having me today. And
0: you're a past guest. Now you work with the show yeah. mostly behind the scenes, but we we had to get you back on air, and this is a great topic. So, you can't get uh, rid of me. Yeah, we
2: cannot. <laughs> so, yeah, Dr. Will Yancey is a board-certified general internist and obesity medicine specialist at Duke University School of Medicine, uh, where he also serves as interim division chief of general internal medicine he's a prolific researcher in this field and we're excited for him to be here. Um he is a fellow of the Obesity Society and diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. And one
0: one one or two other things before we get to that, you know, Paul and I we've we've been talking recently a lot about the Patreon. We've been doing a lot of extra bonus episodes on our Patreon. Uh, thank you to all the people who have signed up. It's really started to take off. We, we've had a lot of great discussions on the Discord, and we're starting to answer their questions on our bonus episodes, and I'm just really enjoying that. Really thankful to all the support. There's a huge team of people that put this together, and the Patreon really helps us continue to do this, the various miniseries, the Digest newsletter. So uh, thank you to everyone who's signed up for that. Paul, any other comments about that before we move on?
1: No, not really. I mean, I said it before, the discord has been a ton of fun. Like it's nice to actually get to know listeners on a personal level. There was just a a flurry of music recommendations and conversations, I think a couple of nights ago. So like, it's, it's not all necessarily medicine, but it's just nice to get to know some of our our listeners on a little bit more personal basis. So it's, it's been a good experience for me too.
0: All right. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And, uh, Without further ado, let's get on to the episode. The audience has heard your bio, but tell them a hobby or interest that you have outside of medicine.
3: Well, Matt, most of my hobbies are athletics. So I've always been interested in sports. And so if I had to pick one of them, I'd say water skiing, um, I I love water skiing and, and, um, do that whenever I can. Um, so peaceful and, uh, and invigorating at the same time. So that, that's what I would say is my biggest outside interest. Are we are we
0: jumping anything? Uh, Paul, what's the Fonzie one? What do you jump over? Like a, 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 a tank full of sharks? sharks.
3: <laughs> I have jumping not jumped over. over a shark before, but I have jumped over the wake before. Um, but mostly it's slalom skiing. You don't do much jumping with slalom skiing. You just go yeah. fast. Yeah.
1: All right. Paul, the floor is yours. Thanks. I, a question I always like to hear is, a piece of advice that has been meaningful to you, either one that you've received or one that you like to give to to learners, dealer's choice?
3: Yeah. A lot of uh, advice that I've received over the years was from my mentor. Um, So Eric Westman was my mentor when I was starting out and doing research, and he had a lot of pithy ones. But one of my favorite ones, which I was really surprised I had not heard until then, was, if you don't fall down some of the time, you're not trying hard enough. Um, and that's always stuck out in my brain as, um, a kind of, a, a thing to spur me on because I'm kind of a conservative person with my career and, and it helps to push me every once in a while to say, okay, I've got to mess up or, or fail every once in a while. Um, uh, or I'm not trying hard enough.
0: Fantastic advice. Fatima, since, uh, you work with Will, but you haven't, uh, you, I don't know if you always have him on the hot seat. So do you, anything you wanted to ask him?
2: <laughs> so many questions no um i guess my, my my question is what's your favorite failure, and what did you learn from it
3: yeah, well, the obvious one that sticks out um uh just above and all above all of my favorite is all my and i can't say there were very many of them prior failures with romantic partners that led to my success with my wife, so that's my oh. fa- my favorite one by far. Um, but I don't, I think that's kind of, um, uh, you know, it should, it should be a more obvious one. And so there was one time early in my career where I had an, a misstep with the IRB, um, and, um, interestingly enough, um, in, in one of my first research projects. And so as atonement, I had to actually join the IRB as a member. So I thought that was kind of a self-serving, um, kind of atonement that they had, but, um, uh, but it honestly ended up being a great experience um, because I learned a lot about research. It just really immersed me in research and um, a lot of different types of research. I had to become really facile with it quickly. And then the other thing is, is I got to know a lot of people in other departments and other areas um, because there's a, a wide range of people who are on the IRB on that committee. And so I got to know a lot of people and, and actually gain their respect and and, and, and their support um, by going in a little bit humbly, obviously, and with a positive attitude. So I think that helped me to network too.
1: It feels like the... Academic medicine equivalent of making someone smoke an entire carton of cigarettes when they get caught smoking wine.
3: It <laughs> <laughs> felt like that when you were reviewing those protocols at times. I can tell you that. And and over the years, the protocols got longer and longer. I, a lot of my colleagues and I um, remember back in the day when our we, we always kind of make a, a, a size um estimation with our fingers about how big our <laughs> protocols that we were submitted because they were done in paper back in the day and then they became like this oh boy. and now they're now they're electronic and they're like hundreds of pages oh, um, but yeah it's changed a lot over wow. the years
0: well i would love to get onto a case because i want to make sure we have plenty of time for this which a popular topic i know we're going to talk about lifestyle advice keto fasting This is stuff that we've had requests for this a lot over the years, and I'm I'm excited to to finally be doing an episode dedicated to this. So Fatima, can you read the first case?
2: Absolutely. So this is a 37-year-old female without much of a past medical history who's coming in to see you to talk about her weight. Her BMI is 32.2, and she weighs 190 pounds. She's got no family history of diabetes or obesity. She spent the last five years having kids. So she had a BMI of 24 before her first pregnancy. During her pregnancy, she gained about 45 pounds. She lost about 30 pounds of that and then got pregnant with her second child um, uh, within about 18 months of that first child being born. In that pregnancy, she only gained 30 pounds. um, And since delivery, she's only lost 20 pounds. So basically, net-net, she's gained overall from when she first um, had kids. She's now a year postpartum after her third, and she's 40 pounds above her baseline before kids. She doesn't breastfeed. She's not taking any medicines, and she has an IUD. She has no future pregnancy plans. She'd like to focus on herself now and wants to talk about what she can do to lose weight. This is like the classic patient I think we see um, in our clinic. So my first question is, how would you classify this patient's weight based on her body mass index or what are the ways that you classify? Um, And how do you first figure out is she overweight or obese in general with, with patients?
3: Yeah, Fatima, I have to ask a question back. First off, after hearing this is, um, I want to know how she's going to focus on herself now that she has three kids under the age of five. (laughs) That's that's the remarkable and probably the number one question to ask. Um, um, uh, Hats off to her to to um, to be ready to work on this right now. Um, But BMI is um, is still. Um, the most commonly used measurement um, we have for determining if somebody needs to lose weight, and uh, there there are a lot of um, criticisms about it, um, and they are warranted. But I think um, 95% of the time it's going to be helpful in our clinic. Um, so uh, you know, as as people may have heard, BMI does fall short in certain circumstances. So you can imagine a very muscular young person um, might um, have a high BMI, where, whereas their percent body fat, which is really the, the real risk here is the percentage of body fat, um, might be low. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we might have an elderly person who is not very heavy, and so their BMI is rather low, but they might actually have a low muscle mass, and so their um, percent body fat is actually higher, and that would put them at increased risk. So so those those are the two areas where it, it, it kind of falls flat, but um, but 90%, 95% of the time, it's, it's going to be accurate. Um, and uh, so, so we use it frequently. The, the other circumstances you do have to think about are that in certain patient populations, it might, um, there might be different cutoffs. And so we, we know from, um, from risk, um, uh, epidemiology of risk, that um, patients of um, Asian descent have a higher risk at a lower BMI. And so they actually have different BMI cutoffs. Um, and so it's, it's important for clinicians to be aware of those.
2: Do you mind going into that a little bit actually um, about uh that population uh because I think not everyone is aware of that.
3: Yeah, I mean so I mean I guess to start with the the um the, the original cutoffs that were uh, more in western populations the normal range of bmi is going to be 18 and a half to 25. Um, people in the um, BMI category of 25 to 30 will be considered overweight, and then people over 30 um, have what um, we, we term obesity, um, which you know, we think of now and the American Medi- Medical Association has, has um, listed it as a disease, um, but it is a term that people don't like to hear. And so it's a term, actually, I won't use a whole lot simply mm-hmm. because people don't like to think of themselves as having obesity or being obese, um, and it is, if you're going to talk about it, it is better to say that someone has obesity as opposed to they are obese. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, um, a patient first or a person first way of, of saying that, um, with, with Asians, um, the risk cutoffs are lower. So, um, a person of Asian descent might have, um, be considered normal BMI if they're under 23 or 24, um, uh, depending on the exact population. And then obesity might be, um, above 27 or 28 instead of 30, like it is in Western Mm -hmm. populations. Um, And and that's um, based on epidemiologic research showing that um, insulin resistance and other um, risks that come along with insulin resistance like metabolic syndrome, um, diabetes, and even cardiovascular um, issues like high blood pressure, those kind of um, risks um, increase at uh, these lower BMI levels in Asians.
1: That kind of leads nicely into sort of the next question. So there's been ongoing discussion entirely warranted about thinking about obesity in terms of like cardiometabolic risk, as opposed to like this absolute number to be concerned about. So I guess I'm wondering how you sort of assess those risk factors at an initial patient visit for something like this, you know, do you check the bread and butter lipid panel A1C stuff? Or are there other specialized labs that you're looking at? Like, I guess, what sort of workup do you do to assess risk over and above just the BMI?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think about that just walking through the, the typical clinic visit. So, you know, obviously at a clinic visit, the first thing you do is the vital signs, and that's going to be height and weight. And you want to measure those, obviously, um, to calculate the BMI. Um, blood pressure is another important risk factor, obviously, and, and even heart rate. Um, you know, as people become less fit, their heart rates typically increase. And so I, I pay attention to that. And, and quite honestly, I'll tell you there are a couple of risk factors that I see that just um, – consistently continue to improve in people who are losing weight and becoming fitter. And one of them is the heart rate. Um, it's, it's really neat to see that. And I imagine you all probably know that as people exercise more and become fitter, um, especially if they're doing aerobic or cardio type activity, their heart rate goes down, their heart becomes more efficient. And that's a sign, um, the, the lower heart rate is a sign that their heart's becoming more efficient. Um, another one is the HDL cholesterol. Um, so we obviously check a lipid panel. But um, in, in my patients who consistently stick with an eating plan and keep their weight down over time, and even if they don't continue to lose weight, the HDL continues to climb. Um, and it's really neat to see that, particularly because um, a low HDL is part of the metabolic syndrome. It's a really, really common um uh, issue in our patients. And so when you see it go from, um, low, quite low, sometimes in the twenties to closer to normal and then the normal range and then even high, it's pretty neat to see that in the people who really stick with it. Um, so another one that I didn't mention is the waist circumference. So that's something we don't do with the vital signs, but I do that when they come back into my clinic, um, room and, and that's something we measure at every single visit. Um, and, and I think that can be valuable because, um, patients sometimes won't lose weight, but they might lose an, an inch, and and that's um, information that first of all could be very meaningful. It's hard to know sometimes because the waist is harder to measure consistently than, um, compared with the weight. Um, but at the same time, it's it's something that you can use to um, to give them positive feedback. And so when patients are trying to lose weight, they obviously are uncertain of how they're doing. They're frustrated at times, and so if you can give them something to to, to latch onto and to, and to um, to motivate them and continue their confidence, that that can be pretty valuable.
0: Can I just a- uh, ask how you how you tape them uh, when you're when you're measuring the waist?
3: Good good question. There are multiple landmarks that you can use, um, and we I'll be perfectly honest um, with you use one that's not typically used in research practices. Um, I use the umbilicus, the level of the umbilicus, and it's because it's so much easier um, to find that area on a body. Um, than it is to find the hip bone or the midspace between the hip bone and the rib, which is, those are two of the more common locations mm-hmm. where we do the measurement. In a research study, that's where you'd want to do it. And actually, that you, you bring up a good question, Matt, that this can be done really quickly in the clinic. And, and a lot of people might not know this, but um, it's a little awkward to reach around somebody, especially if you're meeting for the first time, and, uh, and to put, bring the tape measure around them. But if you have them hold the tape measure right on their um, umbilicus and then have them turn around, just do a pirouette then it comes all the way around them and it's done in about five seconds. Um, so obviously that's difficult for people who can't stand or they're a little bit um, out of balance, but for most people, it's pretty easy to do and it and it's very quick. Um, so that's where, that's where we do it.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Babbel. Folks, it's getting colder outside. There's a nip in the air. The leaves are turning colors. Uh, the smell of pumpkin spice latte is in the air. Um, And something else that happens in the fall, people start looking more at learning new languages because it's a great time to pick up a new hobby. And with Babbel, you can start learning a new language in as little as three weeks, just in time to start showing off to your family on the holidays. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are little more than games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and all of their tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. I have been messing around with Babbel, learning Spanish, something I've been meaning to do for years, and I just switched over. I thought, why not try Italian while I'm at it? Let's just make my life especially complicated, and it's just a joy. They have these sort of short, conversation-based lessons, and you really feel like you're making progress very quickly. And this is confirmed by studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others that continue to prove that Babbel is better. For instance, one study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college, especially the way that I spent my time at college. Here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash curb. That is 55% off at babbel.com slash curb. That's b a b b e l dot com slash curb. Rules and restrictions apply.
0: Paul loves talking about physical exams so much. So do I, but I, Paul okay. especially. So uh, I figured I figured he would enjoy that. Uh, I need to get one for my clinic so that I can do this because it's it's come up recently. Patients have been asking me about mm-hmm. that. You know, I think I'm losing inches. I'm not sure, and I I'd like to be able to conf- help them confirm that.
3: Yeah. Well, another tip I can tell you, and Fatima can confirm this, is that a lot of times I'll bring out the tape measure and they'll say, oh, that's not going to get around me. But our tape measure is about 12 feet long. So it makes everybody (laughs) look like they're small. (laughs) And So there's no way that it's not going to get around them.
0: That's another great pro tip.
3: Yeah, yeah. So Paul had asked about the lab work. And, you know, we we um, order just standard labs, to be honest with you, like a, a primary care doctor would. So um, a, a, car, a complete metabolic panel, so a CMP. Um, and, and I think that's important because I like to look at the liver tests. Um, fatty mm-hmm. liver disease is really common in our patients. I, I would say we we have elevated liver enzymes, the AST and the ALT. And, and it's not always one or the other, to be honest with you. You know, we've all been taught that it's the... Um, the AST that goes up with alcohol and the ALT that goes up with fatty liver. But I've seen seen it go the opposite way. So it's still is likely fatty liver unless they do tell you that they drink alcohol. Um, obviously, kidney and glucose come with that, and those are important, too. Um, we check—I uh, just check a hemoglobin level, to be honest with you. Um, but a CBC could be checked um, a, a lipid profile and I'd do a non-fasting one typically because I want to get it that day and they're not always fasting and it gives you the information you typically need. Um, I check an A1C and then we check, um, a thyroid panel and I, I a TSH is probably plenty, but, uh, you know, there's so much information out there nowadays about, um, ch- checking the other thyroid tests that I, I do the free T4 too. And sometimes people will ask for the free T3, but I don't usually check that one. Um, th- so that's the standard panel. If, if the person is fasting or if they for some reason are going to come back then i really like to check a fasting insulin and make sure to pair that with either a bmp or a cmp so you get the glucose with it and you can you can calculate some insulin sensitivity measures that way although it, just the insulin measure itself is is pretty useful
0: yeah that was that was a question that i had cuz a lot of the a lot of the papers talk about insul- insulin resistance and how it really drops when you have someone on a low carb diet Can you, can you tell us like what, what are we looking at with the insulin levels? I'm not sure if it's standardized among labs, if you can give us a certain number, if it's just above the upper limit of normal or within the normal range that we should look for.
3: Yeah, actually it's lower than the upper limit of normal. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there's evidence to show that people are developing insulin resistance, um, if their insulin levels are over eight or 10 or so in that range. So the upper limit I think is typically like 18 to 20 or something like that, but, um, obviously if they're in that range, then, then they really have insulin resistance. And I've seen people with uh, fasting insulin levels in the forties and fifties sometimes. Um, but, but so I, I have standard, um, language that I send to patients that if it's over eight then they, they may be developing some insulin resistance. Um, there's some calculations that you can use. The Homa IR is one of them. And there's another one called the quickie index that you pair with the, the fasting glucose. And that can give you probably a little bit more of a uh, sensitive in uh, assessment of their insulin sensitivity.
0: Fantastic. I, you know, this is one of those tests where I think since if, if people aren't used to having ordered it, they might have to sort of like get their sea legs about them. Kind of like when, you know, now I'm very good at like looking for metabolic syndrome, the liver enzymes, the blood pressure, all those things. But, you know, this is one that I haven't been doing. So I'm, I'm just curious. It came up at some conferences this spring as well, Paul. I don't know if you remember we talked about it a little bit, but uh, one to maybe incorporate, uh, Fatima, anything, anything we're missing here, um, as far as talking about like the assessing risk, this portion of like when we're first meeting a patient.
2: Yeah. Um, I guess the uh, other question I have is kind of what you do with some of those labs, if I can ask about that. So often we do pick up fatty liver in these patients. And much of our audience is also sort of um, a primary care and generalist. So I'm curious what you do with that. Like, do you use that for counseling? And we'll talk more about some of that um, later, later in our discussion. Do you, like, consider sending people to hepatology? What do you do with that information?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and really what I'm searching for um, are... Or abnormalities that might motivate them to make some changes. So a lot of people who come into our clinic, I'd say, uh, you know, the, the, the lion's share who come in and I ask them, why are they coming in? It's because they were diagnosed with prediabetes recently. So that's usually based on the A1C. And so they already have that in hand, but if they don't, then, then that still gives us um, you know, some information that might, might motivate them. And that, I think that gets a lot of people's attention is that, well, if I have prediabetes, that puts me at rest, risk for developing diabetes. And the words out there that weight loss is one of the best ways of preventing diabetes. And so, and so they naturally come in and they're willing to come in when their, their doctor, um, you know, refers them, um, with the CMP, you know, uh, the, the liver tests, if they're abnormal, that, that, that's something they often haven't heard. And, uh, and so that, I think, gets their attention, and, um, and they wonder about that a little bit. And, and we don't really have um, effective treatments for fatty liver disease other than weight loss at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and as far as we know, um, any kind of weight loss is going to affect that. And, and I can tell you I've seen those, those tests normalize patient after patient with weight loss. It, it, weight loss really works for that. And so for, for that test specifically, I I usually don't do a whole lot with it other than just feedback the information to them and monitor it. Um, there, there are some guidelines out there about when you should refer to a liver specialist and, and, um, my, my, um, you know, practice around that is if they have diabetes or if they're elderly; um, those are two of the bigger risk factors for fatty liver progressing to NASH and or um, hepatitis. And and so that's when I might consider referring somebody, and they might do some additional imaging um, to look to, to see how severe the the fatty liver is and if it's if there is some inflammation in there. Um, the insulin is um, really the same thing. I, I use that as another. Um, motivator for patients. So, they might have all normal tests, including an A1C, um, but their insulin level might be elevated, and so that might grab their attention. Um, The other tests are more just for screening purposes. You know, if, if somebody is uh, if somebody's about to start exercising, I want to make sure they're not anemic. And I'll, I'll honestly tell you, I've caught some people with anemia who's, um, who, who didn't know they had anemia sometimes. And, and so we've done workups in those situations. Uh, the, the thyroid test is, is probably obvious to most doctors, but that's one of the, the, the few reversible underlying causes of obesity that we have. And so I screen that in everybody. So does that cover yeah. um, all those lab tests? I think it does.
1: Well, something I, I struggle with sometimes is that a lot of this stuff, actually, I have the opposite thing with patients where this all feels very abstract. You know, I think a lot of these things, evidence of liver inflammation on labs or say prediabetes or even hypertension to some extent, like they feel fine. And I think mm-hmm. thinking, trying to figure sort of a target weight goal for patients is a question that often comes up. Like, I'm concerned about your weight. These risk factors, you know, are, I've screened positive. I'm, I'm worried about the effect that it's having on metabolism. And then the question is, well, doc, what should I weigh? And if, Mm -hmm. And if they feel great and like, they don't have anything to sort of, you know, if it's, it's what they're just looking for a concrete goal or some sort of target. And I guess I would wonder how you approach that specific conversation. Cause I, I always kind of fumble the ball and be like, I just want you to be your best self, which they're like, you know, (laughs) if they feel fine, like that's not going to help them either. So like, I guess, how, how do you counsel patients about sort of what their goal should be or how to get them there? Especially if they're with, with some of these things being sort of precursors to overt disease. I, I sometimes struggle to sort of convey the degree of seriousness to my patients. So how do you have this conversation right. with them?
3: Right. Well, I think, you know, what I think what you're uh, bringing up is is what buttons to push um, with patients. And um, I think as as doctors and particularly as primary care doctors, we want to try to maximize the health of our patients and prevent problems. Um, at least that's my my overarching interest. And um, so I want to try to figure out ways to. To motivate them to make lifestyle changes when I think that would benefit them, and so sometimes it's these lab values, uh, sometimes it's eliciting what motivates them, and and so I ask it at each um, new patient appointment, and sometimes I ask it um, in the future if they're struggling, um, especially if they're struggling with adherence, is what motivates you to lose weight? You know what what benefits do you th- think you'll see or do you want to see with weight loss? And that's that's a, a wide range for people. Uh, you know, a lot of the older um, patients that we see, it's to spend more time with their grandchildren. A lot of people want to be able to travel and fly in planes easier or walk uh, more easily and have more stamina so that when they're traveling. And for other people, it might be just a to be able to get dressed more easily or to feel better in their clothes. There, there's a wide range of motivations. But but I try to find out what their motivation could be and and try to highlight that. Um, in terms of the actual goal weight, um, honestly, I think it's best to to break that down and have interim goals. I mean, an ultimate goal is helpful to at least know what they're shooting for eventually. But um, a lot of times, it's, it's a lot of weight loss that they're hoping for. And, uh, they can get discouraged in the meantime. And so I try to pick out some interim goals with them and I still base it on BMI. Uh, if their BMI is over 40, then I'm trying to get it below 40. And part of that number comes up from, um, a lot of our patients need to, um, lose weight and lower their BMI so they can be eligible for certain surgeries. And that seems to be a cutoff for joint replacement surgery, for example, and other surgeries, but particularly joint replacement, if it, um, if their BMI is, um, over 30, then that's my next goal. And the risk goes down when your BMI is below 30. In, in that 25 to 30 range, um, which is considered overweight still, and a lot of people still want to lose weight in that situation, um, the risk is actually not necessarily much higher than it is in the normal weight category, um, although they do have increased risk for certain um, diseases like diabetes and, and high blood pressure and things like that. So, so I, I can still go lower, but at the same time, once I get below 30, I, I kind of breathe a sigh of relief at that hmm. point and say, okay, let's see how we can go from here. And if, there's, if they you know, have had to work really hard at that point and, uh, and they're, they're pretty satisfied, then I say, okay, let's, let's hang out here for a while. If they want to drive further, and that depends on how you know, much work they had to put in to get there, then we can go lower than that even. I usually don't drive much lower than 25 though. I, at that point, I say, okay, we're in a good spot here. Um, uh, you know, And, and I'm, I feel really fortunate if I even get to that level.
2: So we talked to this patient and we basically find out that she's skipping meals. She eats a lot of what her toddlers eat. So lots of Kirby kid foods and she does fast food pretty frequently also. Um, And knowing sort of what her life looks like, how do you approach giving advice to her on different plans um, that could potentially work for her and how she can fit that into her very busy life?
3: Yeah, first off, um, Fatima, what you bring up is um, we need to find out what they're doing. And and that's hard to do in a busy clinic schedule, um, it's particularly primary care um, doctors who have a lot of issues they need to deal with but fortunately this woman is coming in for this specific purpose and so we can spend more time with it um, so so figuring out what she's doing with her eating is probably the m- number one thing to to do exercise obviously is important to assess too but the eating is is going to have much more impact on her weight and her health and and so a simple way of doing this is a 24 hour food recall and then i probe, um, a little bit more than that. So, you know, what did you eat over the last 24 hours or what's a typical day for you? And then let's go into a little more detail about, you know, do you, what do you do on the weekends or, um, what do you have? What are some additional snacks that you might have? And sometimes they're fairly generic with their answers and you have to even get a little more specific. You know, there's a big difference between if you eat, you know, sugar smacks, or if you eat, um, you know, uh, shredded wheat. I mean, those are those are much different cereals. And so, what kind of cereal are you having, or what are you putting in your coffee? Because we know that some of the some of the coffees can have a lot of calories in them, and some of them might not have any. Um, and then some of the habits that you bring up are you skipping meals, or um, are you um, are you eating large portions? Do you binge eat? That's a really important question to ask. And patients have different definitions of of binge eating compared to what the official, um, uh, definitions are um, or diagnoses are. Um, but those are important to ask about and certainly ask eating out. Uh, if they eat at restaurants a lot, they're going to be eating higher calorie foods typically. Um, and if they eat emotionally. Um, so if, if if they're depressed or stressed or even bored, do they, do they tend to snack? So um, of all those, honestly, skipping meals may not really be the issue that we once thought it was. So I, I, I don't put, first of all, I don't try to put judgment on any of these behaviors because they're more likely to tell you about them if you don't. And so I try to act like there's no judgment here. Um, and I often will tell them that, but, but skipping meals, um, is not that big of a deal as long as you don't overeat later, that's the issue. And so think of intermittent fasting. Um, intermittent fasting is essentially skipping a meal. Um, and then there's this, uh, big push to, um, have people eat breakfast at one point because it's, you know, it's it's touted as the most important meal of the day, at least by Kellogg's, I would say. but um, <laughs> And that's actually where that came from. If you're wondering sure. about that, it is where it came from. Um, but it also was in a research study where they asked people, the habits of people who had lost a lot of weight. Um, it's a famous um, national weight loss registry. And, um, and they found that they um, ate breakfast. And so the presumption was that we need to get people eating breakfast and that mm-hmm. would help them lose weight. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, smart researchers did randomized trials of that, of people who were not eating breakfast. And um, some of the people were assigned to eat breakfast. Some of the people um, continued on not eating breakfast. And the people who added breakfast gained weight big surprise because they're eating more calories it's it's not a big surprise but um but i think there is a presumption based on the epidemiologic evidence that um that it might help their weight so so skipping meals isn't a big concern but um a lot of these other eating behaviors are
1: this podcast is brought to you by locum story what has changed in healthcare? well the opportunities the lifestyle and you Your needs, wants, and goals are probably different than they were five years ago. Now is the perfect time to explore locum tenens opportunities to see how they might fit into your career story. There is not a one-size-fits-all solution for everyone, and there are a variety of opportunities that might surprise you. Start your research at locumstory.com, which is an unbiased educational resource about locum tenens. You'll hear firsthand stories about the many different reasons why physicians choose locums and how it works for them. The Locum Story website also has tools that let you explore locum's pay and demand for your specialty and compare different locum tenants' agencies. There is even a simple quiz to see if locum's is right for you. Locum's could be an essential part of your career that adapts to your needs. Do the research at locumstory.com. That's locumstory.com. For the audience
0: that wants to talk about taking a a history of what people are eating, we did a show with Dr. Michelle McMackin uh, a, a while back and she really went into how she asks about that, what they're eating, what they're drinking. And, um, I want to, I definitely want to move us on cause I want to spend some time. I want to start to get into the low carb keto stuff. So we have another, another part of the case here, Fatima.
2: Sure. Um, so after your first meeting with this patient, um, you decide together that she's going to start the ketogenic diet or no sugar, no starch, um 2 weeks after her first visit, she comes back and she's lost 7 pounds. The weight loss continues steadily and you can continue to see her every 6 weeks or so to talk about her weight. Um however around 5 months her weight stuck and she's not at her goal and she's frustrated. So I guess my first question is what is a keto diet? I think it's it's very popular and people don't entirely know what it entails, how many carbs are allowed. Um, so maybe we can start there and then talk a little bit more about like low carb as well.
3: Yeah. Um, obviously this is a way of eating that, um, has become quite popular and, and some people might say, how do you decide, um, what kind of eating plan you recommend to people? And, and I lay it out as the, as the options. And in my opinion, there are really two major options unless you're going into specialty things like meal replacements or a specific situation like intermittent fasting. But the two main options are either low-carb or low-calorie. Um, and it's just two different concepts. So a, a, a low-calorie plan is something we've taught for decades, and that's trying to keep calories below what you're expending with your activity um, and your metabolism. And then a low-carb um, plan is trying to reduce starches and sugars with the um, mechanism being more of an insulin res- response. And so, carbohydrates are what raise insulin levels. Insulin's a hormone that um, tells your fat cells to hold on to fat to save energy as opposed to burning fat and burning energy. And so, a uh, low-carbohydrate di- diet will work that way by reducing insulin levels and allowing people to burn their fat. Um, so, a, a keto diet uh, is the, is the t- term that's used nowadays. It's more of a popular term. Um, I teach it on a continuum. Um, uh, so I call it a low carbohydrate eating plan. I try not to use the term diet even because that's a, as a, as you know, it's a four letter word and people have mm-hmm. bad connotations with it and also think of it as a temporary fix as a, and so they can get back to what they were doing. And, and what I want to teach people is a, a, an eating pattern or an eating plan or a lifestyle. Um, and so I, I try not to use that term, Um, So, the keto version of it is just the lower phase, the stricter phase of a low-carbohydrate plan. Um, People have different um, cutoffs for that. We teach below 20 grams per day. That's not magic. I I tell patients this is not a magic number. Some people can go into ketosis. Uh, at at higher levels than that. And some people, um, uh, usually almost everybody um, can develop um, ketosis and have success at lower, um, if if they stay below 20. And so that's what I tell patients. I say, most people are going to be successful at this level. We can raise that level as time goes on and you can find the level that works for you. And and that's going to depend on your age, your activity level, maybe what medicines you're taking, if you have diabetes or not, things like that um so so those are some of the cutoffs 20 grams is is what we use i think a lot of people will use anything under 50 grams is considered a very low carbohydrate or ketogenic type diet
0: i know i know the the folks that that do diabetes they think in like 15 gram of carb increments mm-hmm. right but like mm-hmm. a a small slice of bread is something like 15 grams maybe That's even right. maybe even more mm-hmm. so this is you know pretty pretty low very so you low. have to watch with it doing this you even have to watch like how many carbs are in like the kale that you're eating right is that Correct. uh
3: right yeah so the the typical american might have 200 to 300 grams of carbohydrate per day um so we the way we teach it um the, so proteins like um meat poultry fish eggs those are foods that have zero carbohydrates so those um technically are unlimited but i teach people to eat as much as they need. Okay. And that's, that's an important distinction, um, compared to the way it's portrayed sometimes on the internet. Um, we're trying to help people to lose weight. And so I teach people, um, these are foods that will make you feel full. So stop eating when you feel full because you're trying to lose weight. Um, the other, um, uh, major component are the vegetables. And so all the leafy greens like kale and spinach and lettuce and, um, uh collards, things like that, and then also the non-starchy vegetables and those are things like asparagus and broccoli and cauliflower and brussels sprouts and green beans and several others um, so we we allow about three cups of those vegetables uh, which ends up being the bulk of your carbohydrate content if you're doing 20 grams per day. There are a few other foods including cheese and avocado and olives, but that's the crux of the eating plan.
0: Yeah, and you, what about nuts and seeds?
3: Yeah, nuts and seeds are fairly low in carbohydrate, but on the strict keto plan, we actually uh, avoid those um, foods. And and even berries, which are a fruit that's lower in sugar that some people tout for the low-carb or keto plan, we actually um, avoid those for the strictest phase of the plan. But again, like I I said, I teach this on a continuum. So those would be foods that you would add in to get more variety and more satisfaction.
0: Yeah, and i I know we'll we'll talk about the this but i i mean I was reading reading your papers like that your patients with type two diabetes high blood pressure you're you're they're getting off medications on this diet i mean that's that's pretty strong stuff.
3: It's really powerful. And that, and, and you bring up a good point, Matt. I mean, if you were a primary care doctor and you're starting an eating plan like this, um, it can be very powerful in terms of lowering blood pressure and, and particularly lowering blood sugar. In a person with diabetes, if they're taking insulin, we actually reduce their insulin in half the first day that they start this eating plan. So it happens immediately. Um, and, uh, and, and that's obviously if their blood sugar is under good control to begin with, if they're, if their blood sugar is super high, then you don't have to quite reduce it that much, but, um, but it can be really powerful and, and, and you need to follow up with them pretty closely. So in two to four weeks, they might need further reductions in their insulin if they have diabetes. In terms of blood pressure, um, it, it also has a diuretic effect. So, the physiology is pretty cool. Insulin, not only does it tell us to hold on to our fat, but it tells our kidneys to hold on to water and to hold on to sodium. And so, um, when you reduce your insulin with a low-carb plan, you actually pee out water and you pee out sodium, and you need to replenish those. And for people on blood pressure medicines... Um, you, you might need to reduce their blood pressure medicines, particularly their diuretics. Um, for people um, on, sometimes on blood pressure medicines and people are not on them, we actually have them replenish their sodium. So we actually have a higher salt intake than what's typically recommended during the first couple of weeks when they um, are adjusting to that, that low-carb eating. And they need to drink lots of water for sure.
0: I'm trying to think like, if if our listeners are going to try to roll this out, like, Mm -hmm. you know, what kind of training are they going to need to do that? Paul,
1: what do you? Right. I had the exact same thought. This seems like a very dynamic process. So like, I think, you know, based on what you're telling me now, I feel like I could tell them kind of where to start, but then sort of the adjustments need to be made and the follow up and what does that look like? It seems like this would require, yeah, some, some more reading and training and sort of thought for me to feel comfortable kind of doing this sort of stuff, I think.
3: Well, particularly in people with diabetes or if they're on high doses right. of diuretics. that, that That's really the, the, the two populations to be careful with are people on insulin, I should say, not just diabetes, but people with diabetes on insulin or uh, uh, sulfonylurea like gliburide or glip- glipizide. Um, and then people who are on high dose diuretics. Um, so, there, there are some guidelines out there um, that, that help um, providers to learn how to do this. There's one that's put out by Guidelines Central that that um, we helped with, and um, and it, it it's really the nitty gritty that um, can teach um, providers how to manage a person and teach a person how to do this.
0: Yeah. So you're. It sounds like you're following up with them in a week or two, and then at least monthly in in the early in the early stages of this.
3: Depending on their situation, a person on insulin, I'd like to follow up with them in, in one to two weeks. If they're not on insulin, I'm less concerned, and so it mm-hmm. might be a month or so. Um, but we still try to have fairly frequent follow-up. It's, it's harder to do that in primary care for sure.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Pathway, and Pathway is a new clinical decision support tool that is completely free to use. It empowers practitioners to make evidence-based decisions quickly and efficiently. I was just... Boning up on my hematuria workup, Uh, I don't like the way that sounds, but in any case, I'm recording an episode with Matt on hematuria, so I looked up hematuria on Pathway, and there's a whole section on microscopic hematuria that nicely summarizes the guidelines from resources like AUA and from ACOG, and puts them in this really intuitive graphical interface. It is free to use, and that makes it accessible for all healthcare professionals, regardless of their underlying financial resources. It's also updated daily, so users can stay in the loop with the latest medical research and guidelines without having to sit through piles of paper, unless that's the type of thing they enjoy doing. Pathway also sends out a weekly digest, which is a short, concise email that allows doctors and other medical practitioners to stay up to date with the latest research and guidelines. I'm going to encourage you to take advantage of this innovative tool and improve your clinical decision-making process and enhance patient care by downloading the Pathway app today at pathway.md. Again, that's pathway.md. Again, it's a neat tool. It's free to use. It has this nice intuitive interface and each little bullet points it goes through has an evidence summary. So you can actually look at the evidence behind the guideline that they're actually citing. So that's pathway.md for the Pathway app.
0: I mean, it seems like even even if they're not completely going into ketosis, patients that drastically lower their carbohydrates, like I have seen some patients come off, be able to come off some medications or lower their amount of medications, but maybe maybe not come off all of them uh, just by even just making some of the changes, eating more whole foods and less of the kind of snack foods and things like that too.
3: Yeah, I think it's... It, it's um... Undercommunicated, I guess, is the word. Uh, we, we, I've, I've taken people off hundreds of units of insulin, and it happens. Uh, it can happen really quickly. So I, I've done yeah. it in in weeks in some patients. So it, it depends on obviously what their baseline eating um, style is, if they're eating a lot of carbohydrates and they're on a lot of insulin and they're committed and they change and make that dramatic change, then you can come off their insulin pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it depends on other factors, like how long they've been on the insulin, how insulin resistant they are, things like that.
0: Yeah. So is this, uh, what about cost of this kind of thing? I mean, is this, uh, is this something people can do even if, uh, you know, they're not Let's say they have limited budget for food, but they have enough enough money to buy food. Is this something that they have to buy any fancy keto products for?
3: Yeah, this is a question we get a lot. And it's usually in the context of cost of food. Um, and my main response to that is that it um, any kind of healthy eating is probably going to be a little bit more expensive mm-hmm. than um, unhealthy eating. Um, but there also might be some cost savings with that because you might have fewer— um, health problems. And uh, and it might be with a low-carb way of eating, you, you have less hunger. And so you might actually eat less food, you might be less hungry, and you might be splurging less often um, and binging less often. So I think in terms of the food costs, um, we, we don't have really good evidence to support it, but there, there is concern out there that the food costs might be higher with a, a low-carb keto plan. In terms of the products, you really don't need to have the product. So you don't need to take the supplements necessarily. Um, research has shown, and, and we feel, that uh, that the the real benefit you get from um, low-carbohydrate eating is from reducing your carbohydrate intake and not necessarily from adding ketones or adding fat to your plan. Um, it's just mainly keeping down the carbohydrates. Now, it's okay to have fat with a low-carb or keto-type plan, but you don't need to add fat and you certainly don't need to eat add co- ketones to um to your uh, your intake
0: fatima when you were when you were coming i think maybe you've been using treating patients with this type of diet less you know for less time than will has were, what was most surprising to you or as someone newly putting patients on this like what anything you found most challenging or tips you can offer to the listeners
2: probably the most challenging thing for folks is sort of how they incorporate it into their life when other people in their family might be eating differently. Mm. And so, um, I found that the lowest amount of carbohydrate that one can do is okay too. So you also don't want to overwhelm people. And well, I think you'll, maybe you could speak to this also that, um, Not everyone can do keto, but there are versions of lower carbohydrate diets and plating methods and other ways to do things that can make people still feel part of their family as they're going um, through uh, making some of these changes as well. So for me, I think one of the things I say is, okay, you can't get to 20 grams if your plate has like 10% of your plate is carbohydrate with everything else being greens and protein, Um, uh, that are, that are lower carbohydrate. Is that something that you can do? And maybe, well, you could speak a little bit about, you know, what truly is low carb, um, in a, in a way that, that people can, can, uh, lose the weight.
3: Yeah. Like I said, I teach this on a continuum. So, uh, there, there's a stricter phase. Um, but there are less strict phases. And so a person who reaches their goal, I teach them how to add carbohydrates in very gradually. Um, and and there, you know, technically could be a level below they, below which they need to stay below in order to lose weight. And then another level that's higher than that, that they need to stay below um, in order to maintain their weight. So you can inch up until you start gaining weight and find out what that level is. Um, but, uh, you know, as I mentioned, a keto ketogenic diet is considered something under 50 grams a day. I think most, uh, 50 grams a day. I think um, a lot of people will, th- will say that a low carbohydrate, um, plan in general is below 100 to 130 grams per day of carbohydrates. So, um, so that's, that's a much wider range of, of food intake and allows things like fruit and, and some, uh, legumes or other starches and, um, and allows that variety that people might need. Um, you know, the hard part about this is that, People want to continue to be able to eat dessert and 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 have treats um, and lose weight. And and if you ask anybody, you know, can, do you think that's going to work? They'll say no, but they still want to do that. And <laughs> and those things don't those things don't work very well when you're trying to lose weight. And and it's a hard message to give, but I think most people understand that. Uh, they just need to step back and, and realize it. Um, but but you're right uh Fatima just just sometimes just reducing carbohydrates from what you're doing now can make a difference and and if they're not going as low as 20 or even below 50 what you might do is talk about portions and calories in that situation and still keep carbohydrates lower so it, they get that that metabolic benefit
1: that, that ties in a little bit with the question I was going to ask is how achievable is this type of diet for someone who is a vegetarian or a vegan i can tell you as someone who became pescatarian sort of late in life. I adjusted by just eating absolute garbage instead of, um, meat. So like I, it's, I just feel like that the normal compensatory response is to hit carbohydrates instead. So how do you counsel patients who, who don't have a lot of, um, easy choices for proteins, I guess is the question.
3: Yeah, it can be more difficult. And, uh, and what you described, Paul is, is something that I've experienced with other patients who are vegetarian or vegan. Um, it, so it's interesting that the that term is vegetarian, but they're not often eaten a lot of vegetables. Um, and mm-hmm. so, I, again, I try to emphasize the key foods to have, the best nutritious foods to have are proteins and vegetables, and particularly the non-starchy vegetables. And, and there's really not controversy over that. Uh, it, whether you're a, a proponent of a low-carb or a low-calorie plan, most people agree that protein and vegetables are important for weight management. Um, for people who are vegetarian, um, you know, in your situation, fish and shellfish are an okay option, and that's a great way to get protein. And those options are complete proteins, which means they have all of the. The essential amino acids that you need for good nutrition. The other, um, obviously, any animal food, so so meat and poultry and eggs would also um, be included in there. And there are a few other products like soy or quinoa, and obviously dairy products um, like cheese and and Greek yogurt that are that are high in protein um, and and have the uh, the essential amino acids that you need. So I just en- emphasize those foods for a person who's vegan. It gets a little harder, but this the soy And the quinoa can be good sources. And then usually you um, increase the amount of carbohydrate um, that they're allowed to have just so they can have some of those other foods like legumes and nuts and and, and even whole grains.
0: I I wanted to ask about, because like in line with Paul's question, you know, socially, uh, alcohol is like a big part of at least, at least in the U S is a big part of culture. It seems like there is probably limited options there for people. And, uh, and I guess, and you already kind of talked about desserts and cheat days, like they're, they're going to go out of ketosis if they eat that. And it's probably going to impair their weight loss if they're doing that on the regular, but what about alcohol?
3: Yeah, good question. And obviously, that's a big part of our culture as well. And there are low carbohydrate alcohols. In fact, there are quite a few different ones that can be um, consumed. Um, but again, small amounts is is going to be the key. It's, it, these are foods just like desserts that are not um, – obviously, they're not – necessary. They're not nutritious. They're not sustaining our nutrition. And if you're trying to lose weight, you want to reduce those as much as possible. Um, if, at the same time, you, you obviously don't want to feel deprived and, um, and, uh, and, and, patients want to be able to have some of their, um, their, their cultural, um, you know, uh, enjoyment, um, foods and drinks. And so, In those uh, situations for alcohol particularly, I just recommend the lower-carb ones. And so dry wines um, would be pretty low in in sugar and low in carbohydrate. The very light beers um, and then uh, liquors. Liquors are low in carbohydrate. Uh, Remember that alcohol has calories, though. So um, Mm -hmm. the the sources of calories are proteins, fats, and, and carbohydrates, but also alcohol itself carries calories. And so it still adds calories. And then people, when they drink alcohol, if they have more than several, then they might eat more too. And so that's not so great for weight loss. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, those are the pieces of advice I give to patients.
0: So we, we have to talk about uh, hyper responders, right? Because when, when I first heard about keto, I was like hearing people are just eating like butter and mayonnaise and that's like the main part of their diet. And mm-hmm. when, you know, what you've told us so far and what, you know, what you the the what you write about is like there is as much meat poultry fish eggs as they want and then they're eating leafy greens non-starchy vegetables cheese cream butter you know but it's not like all mayonnaise and butter and oils which was my (laughs) initial impression of keto right but uh i have seen a patient of mine was was uh he i think he was doing more sort of like carnivore keto and his his cholesterol went through the roof. Like uh, initial cholesterol was 197 shot up to over 600 when he was eating just like this very heavy fat, um, diet. So can you, can you talk to that a little bit? Do we know yet? Is that a concern? He was otherwise metabolically healthy, you know, no insulin resistance, uh, things like that. So.
3: Yeah, there, there are a lot of things to unpack in that, um, in that comment. And, And the first is that, um, that, that, on the internet and, and, and the rest of media, the way low-carb or keto can be portrayed is not um, the necessary way to do it, and, and it's not the way we teach it in our clinic. We, we treat we teach people whole foods, and we're not trying to add fats to things. We're not putting butter in our coffee um, or recommending that to people. Uh, and, and, and the reason why is we're trying to get people to lose weight. And so if you're adding fat to things just to add fat, then you're adding calories. So they might not have to reduce their fat intake. They don't have to take the skin off the ch- chicken necessarily. Or they can, if they enjoy cream in their coffee, they can have that. Um, but but you don't need to ne- unnecessarily add fat to things. Um, the, the other, um, there's several other parts to that though, but, um, uh, the, um, the, the case that you're talking about is that I think that's what happens, um, with some people is they, they embrace that part of the keto. And so they eat all of those high saturated fat foods and saturated fats are typically, um, dairy products, Um, and, uh, the skin on poultry and the, the, the marbling on meat that you can see. And then also, um, certain oils like, um, palm oil and, and coconut oil are high in saturated fat as well. And so some of those are touted as healthy and they, they, we don't know that for sure that they're unhealthy, but they are high in saturated fat and saturated fat is the kind of fat that raises your LDL cholesterol. The unsaturated fats, the ones that you think of as being in fish, particularly like salmon and tuna, um, in nuts in olive oil, in um, avocado, those those fats don't raise the LDL cholesterol. Um, they actually could lower it, and they all of the fats um, raise your good cholesterol, your HDL cholesterol. So even the saturated fat raises your good cholesterol. So uh, so so a lot of the concerns about how heart healthy this way of eating, this high fat um, way of eating, is um, they have to be qualified, and, and and actually they have to be individualized a little bit too. So in in, in some people eating this way can raise the LDL cholesterol. And these are the the hyper-responders you're talking about. Um, And it's really surprising to see it. Sometimes the LDL can go up almost 100 points in some of these patients. But in a lot of our patients... It actually goes down, and they might still even be eating those saturated fats, um, but I think it, it just it's a a, um, a characteristic of certain individuals. It's their me- me- metabolism. It's the way they process lipids, and and so some go up and some don't go up, um, but. In most of um, the situations, I'm able to help temper that and and lower the LDL again by reducing the saturated fats. And so we go in and talk about which fats to emphasize, which foods to emphasize, and, and usually the LDL comes down. Now, the, the other part of that question that you bring up is, is does it really matter? And there actually are, are quite a few researchers out there who wonder, if if you're keeping carbohydrates low, does it really matter if your LDL is, is high? Because it's a different metabolic situation. Most of our evidence is based in people who are eating high-carbohydrate plants. And so, a high-carbohydrate eating pattern combined with a high LDL might be a bad situation, but the same might not be true for someone who's reducing their carbohydrate intake. And then throw into that that their HDL might be higher, their blood sugar might be lower, their lower weight, and, and their blood pressure is lower, so many other changes that might be going on. So I try to look at all the different risk factors. Um, and in and, and my patients who have a, an elevation in their LDL, I try to help them to realize and ho- sometimes help their doctors realize that they're having a lot of other benefits. And this is one Potential detriment that we don't even know for sure is a detriment, Um, and not not to mention we can we can change it by the way they eat, or maybe even start a statin if they're seeing a lot of other benefits and they're willing to do that. So, a lot of lot of different um, um, ways to consider that.
0: Yeah, I hope we get better answers for that because you know it. My my thought the the first time I saw it and and not knowing much about this, I was like. Holy cow! This person now looks like someone with f- familial hypercholesterolemia, right. and you know we know what happens to to the uh, to people born with that. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know when they're after twenty or thirty years. But this this sort of way of eating, th- this patient had 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 that numbers look like that for six months. So you know I I knew nothing bad had happened yet to him, but I just wasn't sure over time.
3: Right. And
0: uh, you know I think it'd be good if we had some more, you know, long-term data on this to say what to do. And, but like you said, you can, you can make adjustments that can, can help the numbers look better. Um, but I I think it would scare me away. I don't know about you, Paul, but
1: for, (laughs) Yeah, those numbers would freak me out entirely. Absolutely.
3: There is a registry that's ongoing and they're doing advanced cardiovascular measurements in patients who have volunteered for this, similar to that National Weight Control Registry that I mentioned. um, These are people who have volunteered to be in this registry who who have noted that their LDL cholesterol has gone up and they're willing to continue a low carb keto plan for their own personal reasons. And so they're actually, there's money behind it and they're doing advanced measurements in these patients to see if. They develop atherosclerosis, um, yeah. so so we should have an answer in the not too distant future.
0: Yeah, and that's fantastic because, like you said, there's all those other all those other factors that are different. That th- th- this is now someone who's otherwise otherwise metabolically fit, and we don't know the repercussions of of that lipid profile, a lipid profile that looks like that in somebody who's not insulin resistant and metabolically fit in other ways. So I'll be looking out for it. And also, like you said, not every patient is going to be a hyper-responder. So, you know, a lot exactly, of patients... The,
3: it's the minority, to be honest with minority, you. The minority, right. Yeah, it's yeah. maybe 10 to 15% at the most.
1: Okay. I just have visions of those graphs from the PCSK9 inhibitor trials floating in front of me with the LDL cholesterol and sort of outcomes. Like, it just, it's I it's it's so hard to just kind of cheerfully ignore it in the short term, but it's it sounds like we just don't know enough yet.
2: So um, that case that we talked about, um, the patient talked about losing weight very steadily for several months, and then things got stuck. Um, And that's something that I think we see uh, in our clinic and what folks see with patients as well as they're on their their journey. So what do you do? What can you offer to patients when they get stuck? Um, Is that an actual phenomenon? So I'd love to hear a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, it's not only is it an actual phenomenon, but it's a—it's probably the uh, the biggest uh, vexing problem that we have in weight management. No matter what treatment we use, there will be a slowdown, there will be a plateau, and that includes bariatric surgery. Um, The the plateau typically happens around six months or so with, with bariatric surgery and probably the newer medicines that are out, it's going to be a little bit further out than that, but with lifestyle and earlier medicines, it's usually around six months or so and um, it's real. And uh, so, there are a lot of strategies to do in that situation, though. Um, So, in this this case, a person who is doing a low-carbohydrate plan, um, I might first just find out what they're eating. And uh, oftentimes, um, people have added in carbohydrates just as we talked about how there's a continuum there and so sometimes just going back to the the stricter phase of it the the keto phase of it can allow them to lose weight again and they just need to do that for a period of time and then they can add carbohydrates back in again and an ongoing weight loss will continue um, or they might get to their goal and then they can find a maintenance level. Um, Intermittent fasting is something that I recommend in that situation. And so the concept there is that they're actually going a period of time with even um, fewer calories or no calories, and that lowers the insulin levels even further, and that allows um, fat burning and weight loss to occur. So that's something that I introduce. Um, Just drinking more fluids and water can help people. Um, Evidence has shown that drinking more water actually leads to a few pounds of weight loss. Um, Exercise um, actually can kickstart things sometimes for people. So if they're not exercising, I, I suggest starting. Um, if they're already exercising, we talk about how we can ramp that up further. Um, and, of course, we do have medications. And uh, medications are a, a bigger part of our arsenal right now. Um, but even before the new um, GLP-1As came out, um, the medications could help in that situation. So, um, So we have a wide range of medications we could use in that situation if needed.
0: Yeah, and the audience uh, for time, we won't go into all those, but you can listen multiple episodes uh, we've done on medications for obesity, um, dating back many years now, um, but a couple of recent ones that were really good. So this this people getting stuck, and I was asking Fatima about this a little bit in the timeout. There, we we've talked in the past about like this this set point theory that people sort of anchor to a weight, like they, they attain 250 pounds. So their body thinks they weigh that. And just over, even if they lose 75 pounds over time, they just kind of get drawn back to that, that weight towards that weight. Do we think there's actually a set point or, or can it be readjusted by some of the stuff we're talking about here? Does, does anyone know that yet? What do you think, Will?
3: Yeah, I think that's another one of those um, those research questions that we're, we're still trying to tease out. Um, the, the set point theory is out there and, and a lot of people um, – uh, you know, have have seen the reasoning behind that, and and have some belief in it, but there are also some some flaws in it. Um, so uh, I've personally seen it in a lot of patients, um, and it's it's pretty surprising to see how it happens time and again, and it seems to be at a certain weight. However, I've heard patients come in and tell me I always get stuck here, and I've been able to help them to go lower than that. And and I, I've also seen evidence that they can. Um, develop a new set point if they're able to keep their weight off for a certain period of time, and uh, and it needs to be a long period of time. That's the issue I think at hand is that, mm-hmm. you know, we we, we um, gain weight over a really long period of time in our lives, and um, and so we need to um, to. Uh, lose weight and and maintain that that new weight for a long period of time, too, to develop a new set point. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the new medicines, I think, will help us understand the set point theory a little bit better. Um, uh, that still needs to come out.
0: The intermittent fasting, that that term is pretty imprecise in my experience as far as—I know you know what you mean by it, but the general public, I think, has—they mean a lot of different things when they say that. So, is this the sixteen hours fasting, eight hours of eating window? How do you sort of coach patients through that?
3: Yeah, that that's the most common, um, and that's the, what most of my patients um, bring up when they're talking about intermittent fasting. But there are a lot of different ways of doing intermittent fasting. So, um, so that what you're talking about is time restricted eating, um, mm-hmm. and typically the sixteen eight um, is the is the. Um, the, the, the ratio that people use, which means that they are fasting for 16 hours and eating for eight hours, um, and most patients are doing it um, by skipping breakfast starting around 11 or noon and then um, stopping their eating at about 8 o'clock at night. More of the evidence actually um, is based on a shift earlier in the day and so that you finish eating earlier. And that actually, if you think about it intuitively, it makes a little more sense because um, people are burning more calories and more active during the day. So it's that's a better time to have your calories as opposed to shifting it to later in the day. Having said that, um, people continue to eat after eight o'clock, and so if you, even if you if you start late and you stop by eight o'clock, that can be a benefit to some people. So yeah. so when people ask about that style of eating, the time restricted eating, then I first try to find out what they're doing already. Some people are skipping. Breakfast already, so it's not a big change from what they're already doing. Um, and you obviously want it to be a change. Mm-hmm. The, the other two ways, are, or actually there are several ways of doing this, but the other two main ways are alternate day fasting, and that means every other day you're having a very low calorie intake, and typically around 500 calories per day, and then eating a normal amount on the intervening days. And then the um, the five. Um, two ratio which means that you're eating regularly on five days of the week but you intersperse two days where you're fasting um, and, so those are no
0: calories at all or, or so those are even
3: yeah those are usually even lower than 500 um, so just a few hundred calories but still you're having some
0: for the audience that's not watching on uh, youtube paul is really excited about this he's pumping his fists uh, <laughs> i was trying to figure out when he's expecting. rolling up his sleeves paul is paul is going to start this tomorrow.
1: I'm pretty sure that would kill me. Like I, just, I feel like <laughs> I spend so much of my time already thinking about food and what I'm going to eat and that kind of stuff. I think you know, if I'm just taking two days out of the week where I'm not eating, I think I would either die of distraction or starvation. I'm not sure which, but I'm glad it works for some people. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. It, uh, but it, there are a lot of um, physiologic reasons to consider it. Um, and there, there's a lot of research behind it, but mostly in animals. And that's what I think people don't realize is that most of the research is in animals. There is a little human research. And, and the human research is, is pointing in the right direction, um, similar to the animal yeah. research, but it's near, not nearly as developed as the animal research.
0: Yeah, what I what I've seen so far from the time restricted feeding or the intermittent fasting research, it seems like comparable weight loss to a low calorie diet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's one of those things people are so excited about it; they want it to right. work and like just they be th- that it's like shedding all the weight. But I think from what I saw, uh, it it just it, the, the evidence isn't there for the weight loss specific. But I think like like you said, I mean at night uh what i used to do sit on the couch drink beer eat potato chips you know with my friends watching movies in college i mean like that's that's where people you know you can really put weight on so uh, i mean just cutting out that uh if you stop eating you know and you you're just you're just drinking water at night uh maybe maybe that's part of how it helps but
3: yeah, there there are studies that show some metabolic benefits, so maybe some mm-hmm. improvement in insulin sensitivity, um, some reduction in inflammatory markers, um, and and so that does steer you to thinking that um, this this could have some long term benefits. Yeah. But I, but I think you're right. This is also um, it's a behavioral um, change, and so if if you're not snacking on the couch like you said, because your your time cutoff has already passed, then that's going to help.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Fatima, any, any last questions? I mean, I know we're leaving some stuff on the table. Uh, that's kind of a food pun, Paul, so pun intended. Mm -hmm. And,
1: uh,
0: (laughs) but we, we, we can always do another show on this topic, which I'm, I'm very interested in and we we have to let Will go, uh, and you go Fatima. We we Mm -hmm. all have to get to bed at some point. So anything else?
2: Um, I guess my last question is, um, I have patients who like to ask me very interesting questions about supplements. And so um, how do you respond to this with patients? Is there any supplement that you know of that's helpful? Um, People have lately been asking me about, uh, what is it, berberine, um, which Mm -hmm. is supposed to be nature's ozempic. Um, I've heard a lot about milk thistle. Tell me about Uh, uh, what you tell patients when they ask you that.
3: Yeah, it's a really common question. Um, and and honestly, every few months, there's a new one that um, it's really hard to keep up with that. Um, so, uh, my, my patent response is, first of all, keep in mind that supplements are not regulated by the FDA. Um, and to a lot of patients, that doesn't mean much. But it is important to know that the FDA is not overlooking the quality of supplements. They do that for all of the medications that we prescribe, um, but not for the supplements. But what's more meaningful, I think, is to know that there are studies that have been performed where they pulled these products off the shelf and analyzed what the components were. And the components were not what are put on the label. And so they actually, there were um ingredients that uh, that were not in there, that the label said were in there, and there were some ingredients that were in the um, supplements that were not um, put on the label. And sometimes those um, those ingredients are things that we may not want to have. I mean, it, you know, some of the one of the common ingredients in a lot of these things is Viagra or or um, <laughs> sildenafil. Um, so um, uh, that that's not something that some people will want to have in in their um, supplement, particularly if they're doing it for weight loss or or, or certain individuals. A lot of the um, supplements contain um, stimulants like caffeine or um, ephedra, something called bitter orange. All of these kind of um, it's <sniffs> Stimulants can actually raise your heart rate, raise your blood pressure, and they might be hazardous to people with any kind of um, cardiovascular disease. So, so I I'd try to remind people of that and 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 uh, and and tell them to use caution. Um, there are some um, websites. Even the NIH has a, a nice website that goes over the different supplements that are thought to lead to weight loss and lists you know why they might work, but also lists the level of evidence for those. Um, and there was very little evidence for most of them um, but it's a nice website to visit.
1: well nature's is Ozumbic is such a funny term to me. It's, it's like <laughs> saying like nature's amlodipine, like it's just not like <laughs> along together. <laughs> Sorry, Matt, what were we going to say?
0: Well, I was gonna ask. I was gonna ask for take-home points. Well, we we have to we have to let you go at some point. So uh, <laughs> maybe if you had a couple favorite points that you wanted to leave the audience with, you wanted them definitely to remember from this discussion, what would they be?
3: Yeah. Well, I think w- one of the things to keep in mind is is uh, for patients is to think about what is working and what's not working. So uh, when my patients, you know, come in, they tell me that they need to eat a certain way. You know, I want to know if it's working for them Um, because we all have our habits, we all have our traditions, but if, if we're not losing weight, then then we need to think of what we can change. So, And then when you make changes, you want to reassess and see if it's working for you. Um, and, and, and working doesn't not, does not necessarily mean are you losing weight or if you reached your weight loss goal, um, but weight is one of the things that we measure. It might also be your blood sugar or blood pressure. So so keep in mind um, and reemphasize what's working and what's not working. The other is that um, there's there seems to be really consistent consensus that proteins and vegetables are the healthiest foods for people to have, and, and whole foods um, more than processed foods. So if you think of proteins and vegetables and whole foods, um, I think that you'll um, be on the right path.
0: Fantastic. That's wonderful. Anything that you would like to plug, websites, websites? Uh- anything, any place you'd like to direct the audience. If you are, if you're on Twitter or X, whatever it's called now, if you want them to follow you there, uh, please feel free.
3: Yeah. I I think that uh, I mentioned earlier, a guideline that we put together with um, a um, guidelines Central, which is uh, a repository of all types of guidelines that um, that medical providers can access, and you actually can get an app for that and download those. So many of them are free. Um, some of them do cost, but, um, but we put together a guideline for how to manage people um, following a low-carbohydrate plan, and I think that could be really helpful since we talked about that quite a bit. Um, for Fatima's last question, which was about um, supplements that, like I mentioned, there's a website that um, is on the NIH.gov website. And I think if you just look at, um, if you just search for weight loss supplements, you'd be able to find it. Those are, those are two that I think are pertinent to our discussion today.
0: Okay, that's great. So we will, we will let you go. And uh, thank you so much again for your time, all your teaching. Um, I'm really excited to learn about all this and try to start incorporating some of this into, into my care of patients. Thank you.
3: My pleasure, and thanks for having me on the show.
1: This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy knowledge food, Matt. It's this is weight loss episode food. Is that are we at the pun part yet? No. Nothing. Just for the listener at home, Matt took a drink. He's completely ignoring me at this time. <laughs> so for more. join our Patreon and get all of our episodes ad-free, plus twice monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash curbsiders. You can find our show notes at the Curbsiders.com and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox, including our Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine.
0: And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and we want your feedback, so send an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, pretty much everywhere there's podcasts. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Dr. Fatima Sayed, and to our whole Curbside Team. Our technical production is done by the team at Podpaste, Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, Krista Manchu manages our Discord, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado.